Architecture represents the beauty of uh, the resurrection. The church is a representation of the new Jerusalem. There's a certain dignity and a beauty to a place. It subconsciously affects what we believe. Welcome to the Edify podcast, where our guests share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Mary Fiorito. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Edify podcast. Our guest today is Eric Bootsma, who is a Catholic architect. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for being with us today. Happy to be here with you. Uh, well, how did you get into architecture? Well, um, I guess it was kind of fated to happen. Um, I always like to say is my, my dad was a contractor, so he built things. And then my mom was a painter. Um, and she, she painted with oil paints, all sorts of things, a lot of times buildings. Um, but uh, I think these two things sort of were melded together, sort of like a Reese's peanut butter cup of, of uh, architecture coming out of that, that artistic and practical side. And that's kind of really uh, what I got interested in. And um, uh, when I was at, uh, in my undergraduate at Thomas Aquinas College, uh, my freshman mathematics, really geometry, professor said, hey, you're pretty good at this geometry thing. Have you ever thought about architecture? And then I guess it just kind of clicked. And so then, since then, I've, that's all I've really done. Well, it's, you know, it's a very interesting field, and I think very popular if you just look at, you know, either HGTV or any of the other creative channels, you know, on the cable networks, the, the home shows and the building shows are really super popular. And it seems to appeal to a lot of people, I think, building something and creating structures uh, that you point out in your remarks are welcoming and, um, you know, consoling for people in a way, I guess. Right. Well, I think it's just human nature that we uh, we shape the places that are around us because that really is kind of our uh, habitat, really, is as human beings, we, we are uh, creatures that create things, create a place and create a home a place that we can feel secure, the place where we can feel comfortable. And, um, and I, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's throughout everyone. I don't think anyone just says, uh, yeah, you just give me whatever for a house, I'll, I'll live in a cell. And really, I mean, that's the sort of the horror of being in prison is being in a place that's really plain and, and cold and, and not home to you. I have a friend who recently visited Poland and he went to both Krakow and to Warsaw. And he said the difference was just so striking in the architecture because, of course, Warsaw, so much of it um, was destroyed during the war, but then rebuilt by the communists. And there's no beauty in the buildings. It, he said, you know, you're just it, it's like you're in a black and white film, just looking at gray, ugly building after gray, ugly building. And in contrast, you go to Krakow, where there's that beautiful cathedral and there's beautiful um, architecture. It, for him, it was really a reflection on the difference between what people build when they live in a free society and then what communism does and and it's reflected in the buildings that the that the people themselves build well right i think it really does come out from a philosophy of uh, marxism has a philosophy that um that if the communist uh, revolution was to happen we would create this new man and this new man was somebody who was adapted to um, this new industrial world that we had uh, modernist architecture uh, basically took that premise and said that there's this new industrial man and that we are going to build the buildings which are appropriate to him. So the places that the new industrial man will feel the, at home, feel comfortable with, the places that they would actually call beautiful, uh, to use uh, Corbusier's uh, argument, uh, were going to be these places which were industrial. And so they were the ones that were going to be built uh, according to these industrial principles. So concrete and steel instead of wood 
and natural materials. And then they'd also be sort of warehoused together as they would all be, you know, similar sort of cogs in this, in this wheel uh, of this new industrial state that they were creating. And so when you treat people as if they are um, just part of this utilitarian um, revolution, then, you, then naturally that sort of comes out of that. And you see that contrast between the, the old architecture there and the new. And so the old architecture was the places that, that people really loved there. Again, it's the places that are dedicated to God. But it's also, you know, just simple homes, too, in Poland, throughout Europe. Uh, they're very well cared for. They're a place that feels very individual, even though they can be you know, just the same as anything else. But there's very much a place where people feel they're at home. Right. And when, you know, there's a, there's a book, it came out a few years ago. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's called The Not-So-Big House. And yes. it's a critique of, you know, mega mansions or McMansions or whatever they call them that, that you actually lose beauty um, and more is not necessarily more when you, when you just want to create something large for the sake of it being large. And that actually the more beautiful and welcoming homes tend to be on the small, the more reasonably small side. Right. Yeah, I'm familiar with that that book. That's great. I think it's uh, Sarah Suzanka is the author right. of that one. Oh, and right, right, she, right, um, right. She's an architect. Yeah, I mean, she, yeah, she and her husband, right? Yeah, an architect, I think, in Minnesota. And I think that's that very sort of, well, for me, I mean, I come from a, my family. My dad's Dutch. And so we come from a very sort of practical uh, sort of side of things. So that things are tend to be very small there and very, um, uh, you only sort of need, build what you need to build. Uh, that's the kind of... Um, uh, I mean, I'm a convert, but the rest of my family uh, comes from that very Calvinist sort of ideals of, you know, just work and, and, and do things. Um, just be very practical and, and frugal with what you're doing. So I'm sort of used to that idea of, of things being smaller and being uh, able to be uh, uh, comfortable and cozy. That's the very Dutch sort of idea of, of coziness. So the, the quality over quantity argument. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, so yeah, so then it becomes a much more of a, a, a place of your own that way. So, yeah. yeah. Well, oh, so this is, this is kind of a third rail question, but um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about church architecture and sure. specifically Catholic church architecture. You know, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, and so much of the commentary focused on the buildings in which these services for her, you know, throughout Scotland and then England, took place, particularly Westminster Abbey and then um, St. George's Chapel at Windsor, and the history and the beauty and the art and the um, altarpieces, uh, you could see people were really very much drawn to the beauty of those buildings. Um, and that really seemed to not dominate the conversation, um, but it absolutely was a big part of it. Why do, why do you think that is, that when you're laying, you know, a great, a great queen as she was um, to rest, that so much of the attention is focused on the buildings in which all of these tributes happened? Well, there's a certain sort of appropriateness to it that, um, that, there's an appropriate place to have a funeral. There's an appropriate um, architecture for these things, which, you know, the queen is, is, is more than just a woman. She's also sort of a symbol of a nation. She's the head of state. And she is, for all intents and purposes, she is the United Kingdom. So she's, she's the embodiment of that. And so when she died, um, you can see the sort of tremendous outpouring of, of, of love and support that, that um, that the people of the United Kingdom gave, uh, and and their 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 genuine sadness about this, because she was very symbolic of that. And then, so when you put her to rest, um, those places need to um, 
both reflect on uh, the honor that we would that we would give to a to a to a, a king or a queen, but also reflect on uh, the faith that um, she also represented as you know as the head of the of the Church of England of a of a of a, of a Christian church that she was also very. Uh, she was very faithful, and so the faith there is also reflected in the architecture. So it is, that architecture represents the beauty of uh, the resurrection, really. And so if we could get into, uh, I could get into the weeds about the theology of it, but you know, basically the, the church is a representation, as Dennis McNamara says, of the New Jerusalem. And so we're, we're, when we're having a funeral in a church like that, we're representing that we have this, this faith that uh, whoever has died uh, will be resurrected again in the New Jerusalem and, and join Christ there. So, uh, and we can see that in 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 those magnificent ch- churches, such as at Windsor and at and at uh, at Westminster. But we can also see it in the very simplest sort of churches. I've been studying a lot lately, just very simple English uh, country chapels. And even there, there's a there's a certain dignity and a beauty to a place. Oh, and they're absolutely charming. And I think if you look at um, Modern, you know, I live in Chicago, so we have a lot of. After the the 1960s, we had quite a um, a large number of modern new churches uh, built. And uh, though it's very interesting when when brides go to get married, they almost right. never willingly choose to be married in those churches. They want to be married at right. the Saints, the the beautiful Saint James Chapel downtown, which is modeled on Saint Chapelle um, in in France. They they want to yeah. be married. You know, they you want like. St. George's Chapel at Windsor, right? Um, you don't want right. to be married in something that looks like an airplane hanger and drawn to that kind of beauty during important moments in their lives. So why why do you think, I mean, what happened in the 60s and I guess part of the 70s, you'd have to throw that in there too, with church architecture? Why did it so dramatically go in the opposite direction? Um, and, and why do you, or do you, what, do you think that affects the way people worship, um, the, the, the type of church where they are? Yeah, I think it definitely does. Um, well, um, there's a certain sort of, when people have significant events in their life, they want the surroundings that they have to be significant. And so I think that's the, the attraction that people have. Weddings and funerals and baptisms, those are the things that um, people are always, um, they want to find the appropriate setting for the place that they are doing it to find a home for for that ceremony to find that, um, but really, what happened in the in the Catholic Church um, in the twentieth century modernism and in in general modernist architecture really kind of took over and it became a cultural phenomenon. And so, by the time the nineteen fifties came along, um, the Catholic Church had seen that basically modernism had taken over uh, everywhere. So any any new government buildings, any new commercial buildings, uh, many new houses, although not all of them, were all being built in this modernist style. And so there were many in the church who thought that uh, the church was becoming irrelevant and it was becoming some sort of a dinosaur. And so to get with the times, to get with and be relevant to everyone else, uh, they embraced uh, this modernism in church architecture as well. And so uh, along with that, there was there was a, I think there was a new uh, movement to uh, reform the liturgy and change the liturgy in the um, liturgical movement and in the liturgical conference, which was a um, a group of priests and, and liturgists out in Minnesota at Collegeville, and so in the 1950s they built a church called St. John's uh, at St. John Collegeville. It's the it's the chapel for the whole university and for the monastery there, 
And uh, in, if you look at that church, you can see uh, this full-throated embrace of both modernism and of modern liturgy uh, that they built there. And it's very curious is that, that this was built in the 1950s. So this is 10 years even before Vatican II. So already the church is basically embracing this as a cultural phenomenon and, and trying to be, to be relevant to it. Uh, but the problem is, is, is it really appropriate for, uh, for the church and for the liturgy? Does it, um, does it actually reflect uh, the things that we're trying to teach? And so when the Catholic Church talks about architecture, when it talks about churches, uh, as it does in uh, a little bit in, in Sacrosanctum Concilium in, in Vatican II, um, but in the, the dedication rite of the church, it says that a church is a sign and a symbol of heavenly realities. And as I mentioned before about um, this heavenly New Jerusalem, uh, the church, um, at least in the old form, the traditional form that's been handed down to us, the form of the nave and the sanctuary, of the main body of the church and then the sanctuary where the altar is and where the priests are and when they're offering up sacrifices and offering up the Eucharist on the altar, um, that traditional form goes back to the temple and the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Now, in the tabernacle and the temple, there is a nave and a sanctuary, essentially a larger place, and then the Holy of Holies, as it's called. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where God is actually present. God comes down in the form of a cloud, in the form of this column of fire or cloud. He comes down there and he says, I will sit here and my law will be there in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and then this gets transformed into the church. And so in the church, once the New Testament, um, we have the New Testament, it transforms from uh, just a place where God comes down in, 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 in this form of a cloud. So God is truly present there. It's truly God is truly present in Christ in the Eucharist, and in the Mass there when we are uh, when the when the Eucharist is there, we're celebrating this Mass, and so we have actual the real presence of God, and so that traditional form really had been preserved all the way up until the 20th century, and in the middle of the 20th century, they started to abandon this, and they said there's no distinction between nave and sanctuary. There's no distinction between the laity and the priesthood. There's no distinction between what's going on here. And then they took the tabernacle and they moved it off into a corner. And they moved the and altar rails. This, this, yeah. Right. And so what happened is God is no longer present there. He's present there in the Mass when the Mass is occurring, but not in a very deep and symbolic way. And so this presence of God becomes absent to us. And it becomes, to, to most people who don't, you know, they go to, they go to Mass, they come every Sunday, they don't, they don't immerse themselves in theology and philosophy, in liturgy. Uh, they just go there and they, 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 they come and they, they, um, they take communion and they, they listen and they pray and most people are very devout. But not having the tabernacle there, not having a sanctuary there, subconsciously affects what we believe. And so what it, it, it leads us to believe that God's not actually truly present there because he's not present there. And so is it any wonder then that, you know, among other reasons, uh, that this led to uh, a belief, uh, a lack of belief in the true presence of, of, right. of God. That's, that's a really interesting uh, point because it's, um, so do, do you think then that architecture, um, you know, does influence liturgy and worship? I mean, it's, you know, I occasionally put on 
Joel Osteen's, um, you know, worship services. I find, well, you know, it's interesting that you, they, they worship in a former, um, what it was, the Compact Center, right? The, uh, right. the Houston Astros. The, the stadium, correct. And so you have a former stadium. And um, I always find it kind of amusing that occasionally he will say, if there's talking going on or whatever, um, he'll say, you know, remember you're in the Lord's house. And, you know, you need to keep a respectful tone. And, you know, like you want to laugh because you're thinking, no, you're in a stadium. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. obviously, they've renovated and things. But so right. do you think, um, and of course, they would not have the same perspective on sacramental life, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and they don't have a sacramental theology. So it's, I know we're talking about apples and oranges, but I do find, um, I'm not at all surprised people would be joking and talking and, you know, in that kind of atmosphere rather than coming in with sort of a quiet reverence. Yeah, I think I think it does affect that. It it, it definitely is. I'm thinking of an example um, in secular architecture of this. Um, uh, when I was working here in Washington D.C., my old boss Milton Grenfell was uh, a great architect, and he was telling me about how when they renovated uh, the state capital of Mississippi, where he was from, uh, for about a two or three year period, they they closed down the capital, so they were redoing the entire, making it beautiful again. So the Senate and the House met in a gymnasium in the nearby uh, high school. And someone asked him, did, how did this affect how they, how they acted? Did it affect it at all? He said, absolutely it did. They started acting like they were in high school in a gymnasium, rather than being uh, uh, conducting themselves with the dignity that the building itself uh, represented. So the building itself uh, had this sort of uh, deep dignity that you, when you came into it, you couldn't help but, um, but being uh, acting in a, in a dignified way. So when you build a, a church out of a stadium, of course it does. It makes that happen. You know, also sort of thinking about too, is somebody had talked about, um, I think there's a library at Yale where commonly freshmen will walk into this and it's built in this Gothic style and they'll find out, freshmen come in in the first week and usually the Catholics come in there, they start to genuflect once they come into the library. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> They're sort of used to it because it feels like a church, but um, so the architecture definitely does. I mean, it, it affects everything and it's usually at a very subconscious level, but it is. Uh, when you're surrounded by things that are uh, treated with dignity, you treat, tend to treat those things with dignity as well. It's not always the case, but in general. Well, tell me, this is kind of a putting you on the spot question, but what do you think architecturally is the most beautiful church in the United States? And then what would be the most beautiful church architecturally in the world that, you know, I know that's a personal thing and a lot of beauties in the eye of the beholder, but what do you, what churches do you think are exemplary in this regard? I get asked this a lot, and it's very always a very difficult question because I, there's just so many places that um, number one I've been to and it's been awe-inspiring and, and 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 beautiful. But I'll say um, since I'm here in Washington D.C., um, I really love um, the Basilica of, of the Immaculate Conception. It's good. Uh, St. Matthew's, though, is absolutely outstanding. It's one of my favorite churches anywhere, and I was just in it this morning, and it. Um, it is just the, the mosaic work, the paintings in there are just magnificent. Um, I've never been to St. Louis, but everyone tells me St. Louis is amazing. Uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, the Cathedral of St. Louis. Uh, another one, um, St. Paul in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, it, it is just one of the most uh, magnificent and beautiful churches here. Uh, but So we have, we have just great examples here in the United States. Uh, my alma mater, where I went to Thomas Aquinas College, they, they just, just built a new church, Duncan Stroik, who was uh, a former employer of mine. I uh, finished that up about uh, 10 years ago now. 
uh, it's absolutely uh, magnificent. Um, uh, another architect who works here in, in Washington, D.C., it teaches at Catholic U, James McCreary, has just finished uh, a, f a few churches in St. Mary of the Sorrows in, uh, in, in Virginia, Northern Virginia is just great, too. What, what um, do you think of the new cathedral? It's not real. It's not new now. But it's twenty years old. But the uh, the archdiocese of Los Angeles, of course, they had Saint Vibia right. Vibianos, which was uh, I think like Saint Matthew's, just simply right. so limited in size. They they really right. did need a bigger right. worship space. But what do you think of that? Because that was kind of up, uh, upheld at the time as you know the best of the old and the new in terms of architecture. It's certainly, it's better than I think a number of churches that I've seen. But it has. Um, it has a certain sort of utilitarianism to the interior, a very sort of plainness to it. Uh, plainness in and, in and of itself is not terrible. I mean, Cistercian architecture is definitely very plain um, and, and, and very devoid of uh, extraneous um, ornament. But uh, it has a very curious uh, liturgical emphasis to it in that the whole floor sort of slopes down to the sanctuary, which is at the bottom. Uh, and then the sanctuary is not lifted up at all. And again, it's that idea that the lack of distinction between sanctuary and nave is really kind of right. most troubling parts of it. And the, the lack of sort of dignity given to that, that special place that really, that really is a, a traditional but a very symbolic um, uh, uh, element to a church. And really, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's really sort of essential. And so it's one of those things that's, it's, when that's missing, you're essentially not building a Catholic church. You really, really should be building something that has uh, a significant uh, sanctuary as almost a significant different space. Well, just as we wrap things up here, where do you see the state of architecture in 50 years um, in terms of church architecture? And what do you think are the chances of there being sort of another renaissance um, to, to go back to the more sacred expressions of, of liturgy that are reflected in the buildings? Well, I think there's a, um, there's a great, uh, there's certainly been a great resurgence in, in architects who are able to build in a traditional way. There's a, there's a greater understanding of how architecture and the liturgy relate to each other, how the symbolism and the theology of the church um, People such as Duncan Stroik, who I mentioned, um, he's been writing about church architecture now for you know close to 30 years. Benedictine College, they're starting a program in uh, traditional architecture. They are really teaching a next generation of architects out there in, in order to build in a very beautiful, meaningful, uh, symbolic way and how to use uh, traditional architecture um, to build traditional churches and so that they reflect those those real truths of the church. So I think we're, we're heading in the, in the right direction on all of that. I think there's a lot less desire I, I see among the priests that I work with. Uh, there's a, a great desire to build uh, in at least very traditional liturgical manner. Again, that nave and sanctuary manner that they build. So I see this uh, all across the country. The, the churches that are, that, that um, the, the priests who are in, of the coming generation and the ones who are uh, you know around my age uh, are all sort of heading towards that direction so well I'm, I'm glad we could end on such an encouraging note this has really been a, a fascinating conversation and eric thank you again for helping to edify us so that we can in turn edify our fellow americans it's been a pleasure to have a conversation with you likewise thank you for having me and uh, it's been a great day thanks thank you for listening to make it easier for you to listen to future edify podcast episodes 
please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.